guys, before getting into the message this morning, I did want to bring up the fact that this is Pro-Life Sunday. This is the Sunday each year that directly precedes the anniversary, January 22nd, uh, 1973, in which the Supreme Court of the United States legalized abortion in all 50 states. Uh, since then, about 60 million these are rough counts, obviously, but about 60 million uh, abortions since then. Uh, it is offensive in some churches to bring up this. It's seen as a political topic primarily, and it is not primarily a political topic. It is a spiritual topic, a spiritual issue. And the God that we love and serve and have been saved by is, is not only life in and of himself, but he's a life-giving, life-promoting God, and so we want to be about that business too. So just as a reminder, I tell you this, on the political end, and politics are not everything, you know, politics don't change hearts. God changes hearts. Ultimately, spiritual solutions are what are needed, not political ones. Politics follows the heart. But um, Kansas, as you know, last year, the Kansas Supreme Court changed the laws of this state, basically upending any abortion uh, laws on the books. So that the Supreme Court said this is a constitutional right. So starting this week, you may have seen this in the papers on Tuesday. They start hearings on a constitutional amendment at the Kansas Capitol. And it's called, it's titled Value Them Both. What it seeks to do is to return the legislative ability to the House and the Senate here in Kansas and to remove that from the court. It doesn't do more than that. And if it passes in this session, then it would be on the primary ballot in August. And then hopefully it would be passed and the legislature would be able to enact some kinds of restrictions on abortion again. And God willing, Kansas would not become the abortion capital of the country again as it had been before. This on the heels, Planned Parenthood last week announced that they intend to spend $45 million this year to elect pro-abortion candidates. So this is a hot topic, as you know, and, and guys, it touches everybody, it affects everyone's lives. The big thing for us, I would say this morning, this isn't the message, it's just a reminder, is to pray. Uh, God has powers you and I don't, and, and praying, I still think, is the biggest thing we can do. So pray for your legislators and senators to pass the amendment, get it on the primary ballot, Lord willing, it would pass at that point. We want to pray for those who don't value the life of the unborn. Um, everyone's going to see Jesus one day. And some of us see him face to face as Savior, and some of us see him as judge. And one of the worst things I could think of is someone with the blood of the innocents on their hands standing before Jesus as judge. That's not a happy thought for them or for me. We want to pray for those who think abortion is a good thing. We also want to pray for those who've had abortions. Guys, we always assume in a group this big that there are women who've had abortions. There are men who have recommended or paid for abortions. And the good thing, this is not a good way to say it, but the good thing about abortion is this. Abortion is sin, and God gives us a way to deal with sin. When people say we've made mistakes, it's like I probably can't help you with mistakes. If you say I've got a sin problem, I say God's got a solution for sin. So if you've had abortion, if you've provided or recommended abortion, we confess that as sin and God forgives us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness and, and we go down the road and we trust God for all of that. So there's hope even in something like this. We just want to be aware and we want to be spiritually tuned in. We want to be praying. With that, let me pray and then we'll get into the message. Uh, Father, you are the God of all life. Uh, Jesus said it's life is knowing you. It's being in relationship with you and You've provided for that by the blood of your son freely shed for us on the cross. We are eternally grateful for that. We, we can't get beyond your love for us expressed in Christ, laying his life down to redeem ours. We thank you for that. Lord, ask this morning that you'd comfort, encourage, challenge each one of us just as you know we need to as we look at your word together. We do pray, Lord for politicians who enact policy, who are for or against certain things that promote or take away from life. We pray for Kansas legislators and the senators. We pray for Kansans who will be at the ballot, Lord willing, in August. Lord, we pray for those who are supporting 
abortion and those who've had abortions that they would seek forgiveness that's freely available available through your son we pray in jesus name amen uh, guys you know if uh, abortion in inconvenient circumstances had been practiced in the past we'd be in trouble wouldn't we i'm thinking of a couple cases specifically mary or miriam was a young betrothed girl in galilee and she's betrothed, she has a fiancé, she's legally married, but their marriage hasn't been consummated, and she's going to be pregnant. And she has gladly said yes to Gabriel when he says, you're going to carry God the Son, the Messiah, but she knows she's going to be facing very inconvenient nine months here. When she starts showing and everyone knows they, they aren't legally hitched yet, they aren't living as husband and wife, she's going to have a baby very inconvenient, saying yes basically to shame and the humiliation that would have potentially come with that. Uh, my daughters who are in their 30s have been chagrined to find out that they're considered geriatric pregnancies. Serious. I don't know what age, I don't know when in your 30s that qualifies, but they're geriatric pregnancies. Sorry to my daughter right here. So consider Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth's far, far too old to conceive, and yet God's blessed Elizabeth and Zechariah, as we saw last week, with a baby. At the stage of life in which most women are, are simply sort of slowly winding down towards the end of their life, she's got to gear up not only to carry a pregnancy and deliver, but to raise a rambunctious little boy, I'm sure. Inconvenient, no doubt, but without Mary's inconvenient birth, we have no Savior, and without Elizabeth's, we have no John the Baptist. Uh, we're in the Heroes and Villains series again this morning, and you know, the hope is always that our own faithfulness is encouraged by the faithfulness of those who've gone before us whose lives are recorded in the biblical record. And we want to make sure that's the thing. Jesus is the source of faith, and he's the model ultimately for faithfulness. But we look at these individuals in the scriptural record to say, what does that look like in different times, different places, and how can I learn and benefit from their faithfulness? So last week we looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth, and basically that they'd live faithful lives even though God hadn't blessed them with that thing they really wanted, at least a child, if not children, until well, well into the later stages of their life. And this morning, we're looking at their son, their miracle child, John the Baptist. Guys, in some ways, John the Baptist is, apart from Jesus, arguably the, the most unique person in the pages of the Bible. He he fills a, a one and only role. No one else did what he did. No one else could do what he did. And God singularly calls him out as the greatest person in the Old Testament. And that's saying something. Totally unique role. Think of that from Matthew eleven eleven when Jesus describes John and says, no one born of woman before John is greater than John. John's the greatest that's ever lived on the earth. And you put that in perspective, especially if you're a Jew and you've got context for this. So Jesus, you're saying John's greater than Abraham, the father of faith. Yeah, he's greater than Abraham. And he's greater than Moses. Think of Moses on the mountain, fire and smoke and trumpet blasts. He's greater than the guy that met with you there face to face and got the law. Yeah, he's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua, marched around Jericho and the walls came down. Yeah, he's greater than Joshua. Greater than King David. The man for God's heart, yeah, he's greater than David. He's greater than his own father, Zechariah, and every other priest, whether they be a high priest or a low priest. He's greater than every prophet. This is stunning to me. He's greater than Elijah the prophet. Yeah, he's greater than Elijah. He's greater than Isaiah, the prince of the prophets. Jesus said, yeah, he's, he's greater even than them. His role was to specifically and uniquely do two things. It was to call Israel to repent in sort of a form of house cleaning, if you will, because he was going to introduce their God and Savior to them personally. So that's his unique role. No one else in all the Bible like John the Baptist. And yet, for all of that, he was called to faithfulness no differently than you and I. Our different circumstances, unique life, absolutely different from us. But called to faithfulness, and you'll see this in two primary ways. One was to be holy, uniquely so. We'll look at that. And the other was to prepare Israel and then introduce them 
to Jesus. That is, so to prepare Israel as a nation for their God and their Savior to arrive. We'll look at that also. The main point we want to take away this morning, and guys, this is really fuzzy. My, my hope is that as we work through John's story, and we're just focusing on those elements that speak to what did faithfulness for him require? What did that look like? Hopefully as we do that, the fuzzy gets clear for each of us individually. We can, we can gain some perspective of what does that mean for me or what does that look like for me? But faithfulness in the image of Christ is ultimately about living for the sake and glory of God in the unique time and place and in the roles God has given us. So based on where God has put me, when God has put me, and the roles God has called me to fill, this is what faithfulness requires of me. This is what it looked like for John. This is what it might look like for us. What does that look? So we want to ask the question as we work through John's story. What does faithfulness require of me? Based on where I'm at, so, and none of this is accidental, right? God's sovereignly at work in all of our lives. You occupy the space geographically and also relationally that God determined for you. The time, we live in a time, it's not our grandparents' time, it's not our grandchildren's time, we live in a unique time, and each of us has roles that God means for us to be faithful in. So we've got to answer these for ourselves as we work through. This isn't, this isn't be faithful in this one category, this is based on when and where God's put me, and what the roles he's already ordained for me require, that's how I know what faithfulness looks like. So that's where we're going this morning. Uh, timeline, just to put this in the bigger narrative of redemption, you see biblically, we've adjusted this as we go into the New Testament. So Malachi there on the left end, you remember last prophet of the Old Testament, about 400 uh, B.C. We've got 400 silent years. We said historically they're not silent. God just didn't give us any recorded version of his testimony to his people. Herod, wicked Herod, Herod that kills the children, the little boys, uh, trying to get rid of Jesus, Kent comes onto the scene about 37 B.C. Uh, Jesus and John uh, birth, 4 B.C., is generally considered the best guess. Uh, public ministry for both of them starts 29 A.D., and then Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, 33 A.D. in the spring. John's would have been just before that. I'll mention, too, when John starts his public ministry, so think of Luke 3 and 4 and on, or Matthew 3 and 4 and on, uh, Tiberius is the Caesar, so if Caesar's name comes up, it's Tiberius in the gospel accounts. Pilate's governor of Judea, and of course, Pilate famous, infamous for the crucifixion account for condemning Jesus to death. And then Herod the Great's sons, Antipas and Philip II, rule over Galilee and the area north of, of Galilee. I should have had a map for this. So Pilate rules what we would call Judea proper. And, and Herod the Great's sons, Antipas rules Galilee area, and Philip II, north of that. So when you read in the gospel narratives about Herod, past the birth accounts, it's not Herod the Great, it's Herod Antipas, almost always. He's the one that interacts with John and with Jesus. With that, if you use a pew Bible, I'm going to start on page 855, so we'll actually be all over the place a bit this morning. I want to start back in Luke 1, verses 13 through 17. We looked at this last week, but it cues us for John's story again this morning. Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the temple, the holy place of the temple, and he tells Zechariah, Elizabeth, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. He'll be great before the Lord. He's not to drink wine or strong drink, filled with the Spirit, even from his mother's womb, that was a way of saying he's a Nazarite, and we'll look at that, but he has a special calling, unique, among other Jews. He will turn, verse 16, many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and from verse 16 on, you get phrases that are out of the prophets. So he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, that image is out of Malachi 4. He'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, that's Malachi 4 to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's Malachi 3. So the angel is basically referencing the Old Testament prophets. John's going to be connected to them. You look at Luke 1, verses 76 through 80, 
This was eight days after John's birth, and this is when he was officially given his name, and he circumcised. So the parents are there, neighbors and relatives are there. They name him John. And then Zechariah, who'd been silenced, you remember, since Gabriel appeared to him, he's free to speak again, and his prophetic utterance is called the Benedictus. It's a good word or a good blessing over his son John, among which he says this. He says, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And then that section closes down at verse 80. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So <laughs> related to the uniqueness of John's life and his call, John's call in life was never in doubt. From before his conception, God has said, you're going to have him, this is his name, and this is what he's going to do. So John grows up, and there's never any doubt about what his calling will be. Do, do you guys ever ask your kids or your grandkids or young kids in church, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? What's your vocation? Whatever. John would never have had that question because it's settled from before his conception. He knew his very existence was brought about by God, divine intervention, and his role in life was determined long before his birth. That could sound liberating to you or it could sound like a weight to be born, depending on your perspective. So if, if God tells you, this is what I've got for you, does that make you feel liberated? I don't have to figure it out? Or do you feel like, oh man, I've got this weight that I've got to carry? I hope that it feels like liberation, that I don't have to figure it out, and that I'm actually walking in the thing God's prepared for me. And that's what you get in John's story. This section we're talking about, the ways God had ordained not only John's existence, but what he would do, what his life would look like, and what his role was. God had set all that out ahead of time. Is that okay if God does that for John? Is it okay if God tells John, you're going to be born, and this is what you're going to do? Because that sounds pushy to me. Does, you, you think, we tend to think that we have far more autonomy than Scripture gives us credit for. And God basically says, you're going to have a kid. This is his name. He doesn't ask Zechariah for his opinion or if that was on his names list. He says, this is his name. This is his call. This is what you're going to do for him, and this is what he's going to do. All of that was set out beforehand. To that, if you've got your Bibles, feel free to turn back to Isaiah 40. So what is John's call? Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. And you guys know if you read Isaiah, the, the entry chapters up through 39 can be a challenge because you're wondering uh, who is this speaking to and when. But you get to 40 and you've got this lofty, lofty language about God and Israel and the servant of the Lord and the Messiah. And it starts here talking about someone who comes before God's appearance to his people. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord, the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So Isaiah says there's going to be a voice. It's interesting for a couple of reasons. It's a voice, it's, not, it's like it's not a person. It's like a wind in the desert. He's not given the credit of personhood, just that he's going to be a voice that speaks to God's people. And notice, too, this whole thing with the wilderness. This is a telling description. What does it tell us that when John the Baptist comes on the scene to introduce Jesus, that he's not from the temple? He's not from the religious hierarchy. So if you were in Israel and you're talking to the religious leaders, you're not in the wilderness, you're at the temple. And you're talking to the Sadducees and you're talking to the Pharisees in the synagogue. And John comes from neither of those places. What does that tell us? When God came at this time, God spokesman and Jesus, when he comes up, do you remember his public ministry doesn't start until he's been where? He's been 40 days in the wilderness. And that God is doing something new, and it's not from within the jaded hierarchy, the religious leaders, it's coming from outside the camp, if you will. 
John comes from the wilderness. Jesus comes from the wilderness because God's doing something that the religious establishment isn't part of. That's often the case. You go to Malachi 3, and there he says, Behold, I send my messenger. Again, he's not named. He just says, Behold, I send my messenger. He'll prepare the way before me. God speaking, my messenger, prepares the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. You imagine Jesus standing in the temple after John has introduced him. This would be Malachi 3. You go to Malachi 4, the end of the book, and the end of the Old Testament. Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He'll turn the hearts of fathers to children, hearts of children to their fathers. So you've got these Old Testament scriptures, and Isaiah is 700 years before John. And Malachi's 400 years before John. You know, the only thing like this in the Bible remotely, you remember about Josiah when we looked at good King Josiah, that he had been prophesied by name? Not only that he would be, but what he would do with, a, with a, an idolatrous altar almost 400 years before his birth. There was one biblical reference to that. But for John the Baptist, 700 years before his birth, he's prophesied he is the voice. 400 years, he's the messenger. He's the one like Elijah. And when you get to the New Testament, Jesus and John himself say, this is who he is. This is who I am. These are on your study sheet. Matthew 3, 3 and 4 Jesus says he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is the guy from Isaiah 40. He says uh, he's got a garment of camel's hair and leather. If you read 1 Kings 1 verse 8, that's exactly how Elijah the prophet is dressed. Matthew 11.10, Jesus says to the crowds, this is the one of whom it was written, Malachi 3, behold I send my messenger before your face. And John 1.23, you know, when John comes on the scene, we'll read a, a text of that here in a minute. When he comes on the scene, it's clear that he has such spiritual power and authority that he's somebody. And the Jews are waiting for somebodies, aren't they? Because Moses said, you're going to get a prophet, he's going to be like me, Deuteronomy 18. You need to listen to him. But they also had these passages about the voice and the messenger, and, so they're, and, and of course, the Messiah. So John comes on the scene, and they're wondering, who are you? So they ask him, who are you? And John says, I am the voice, Isaiah 40, of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So imagine John's growing up. I bet mom and dad tell him the story about the angel appearing in the holy place and telling Zechariah about John's conception and birth. And then they probably would have read in these passages because Gabriel has, has cited Isaiah and Malachi that John is the fulfillment of those scriptures. So John would have grown up being told the story, the angel appeared, you're a miracle baby, it, this is, you're, you're here by God's doing, and these verses in our Holy Bible are you. That would be mind-blowing. I wonder when they told, how old was he? Was he a tiny boy when he heard that? I wonder if the temptation was the big head, do you think? I, I am the voice, I am the messenger, I don't know. But he knows, he knows probably from almost earliest memory, his existence was to be the voice that prepared the Lord's arrival in the desert, to be the messenger who prepared his entrance to the temple, to be the one like Elijah who would turn fathers and children back to each other. So, for John, uniquely, Faithfulness meant embracing the role God ordained for him. To that, as far as the way, so we see John, and we'll see what he does here. He fulfills his role. So John's got this unique call, and it requires certain things of him, and it's by God's ordination. God has said, <clears throat> excuse me, God has said, this is why you're here, and this is how I'm going to use you. These are the roles you're going to fill. He doesn't apologize for that. And we say on one hand, John's very unique, and yeah, he is. But on the flip side, are there elements of your life and mine as followers of Christ that God didn't ask you permission about, that he just ordained and said, this is your deal? So I can think of at least two, and there's certainly more than that, but, but briefly, every Christian has spiritual gifts, right? 
1 Corinthians 12. Who gives those to us? Do we go up to a candy store and say, I'll take one of those and one of those? Nope. So the scripture's clear. The Holy Spirit gives us the spiritual gifts as he sees fit. He puts us in the body of Christ where he's decided. We don't call that. It's ordained for us. So for us, like John, the question isn't so much, what are my spiritual gifts? Though we need to answer that for sure. It's am I being faithful with what God has ordained for me? It's, it's always a question of faithfulness. It's been ordained by God that you fulfill certain roles in the church of Jesus Christ. The question is, are you? Are we? You've got gifts because God's given them sovereignly as it's, he, he saw fit. Are we being faithful with those? Another thing is from Ephesians 2.10. We quote Ephesians 2 to say that we're saved by God's grace through faith. It's easy to forget that in verse 10 it says, that we're called to walk out the good works he has ordained for us. You know, there are roles and there are things God means he has ordained for you to do that he's not called anyone else to do, or not at least in the same way at the same time to the same people. That's, that's by God's ordaining. You have works God means for you to do, unique from what he's called other people to do. Maybe similar in some ways, but unique because it's you in the roles you fill in the place and the time God's put you. Are we faithful to those things God has laid on us because he's God and we're not? And he simply said, this is what I want from you. This is what I expect from you. Hopefully that feels like liberation, not a burden to be born, because what we find is when we walk faithfully with God, when we're doing what he's created us to do, Friends, there is a sense of liberation, not of enslavement, not of burdens too heavy to be borne, but of liberation because we're doing what God made us to do. If you think of the old movie, Chariots of Fire, Eric Little or Liddell, who says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Well, when we serve in the places and the ways God has called us to, ordained for us, there's a pleasure we get, even if it's difficult, because we are doing what we were made to do. We are being the person or the people in Christ God meant us to be. By God's ordaining, by his sovereign will, that's an entirely good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, John had a unique uh, call to be separated from a number of things. The angel Gabriel referred to elements that had to do with what's called a Nazarite. You can read about this in Numbers chapter 6. So when John's a little fella, he's not only a little Jewish boy who's growing up under the Mosaic Covenant, which has all these lists of do's and don'ts, that's a given, the culture of the time he lived, but he's also got these additional restrictions and requirements because from birth he is especially dedicated and that's what the term Nazarite means. He's especially dedicated to God in a unique way. So when he's a little fella, his parents would have told him, son, never touch a dead human body. And son, when I die, you can't help prepare me for burial. You can't touch me when I'm gone because you'd be ceremonially unclean. Nazarites couldn't touch a dead body. Son, never eat anything from a grape. Drop that grape, throw those raisins down, you can't eat them. And he says, well, everyone else is. Yeah, but you can't. You can't drink wine. You can't have anything that comes from a grapevine. You can't have vinegar. It would have been common in their day to take in vinegar and with your coarse bread, your bread maybe like we do with fish and chips, I don't know, but you would have put your uh, bread in vinegar. You would have eaten it. It would have been sort of seasoned or softened, if you will. No vinegar. Uh, nothing that had been fermented. And never cut his hair. Jewish guys were called to leave the hair on their temples long, uncut, but they would have cut their hair otherwise. So John's hair had never been cut as long as he lived. That's wild. What a mess. I'm, Dan, right? We're glad with a lot. Little, little or shorter hair at least. So his hair had never been cut. And you'd think of somebody like Samson in the judges period, that that special dedication to God, you don't cut your hair. Your hair was a symbol of God's ongoing presence in your life, at least for the duration. So he's living the life of 
faithfulness under that mosaic economy, but he's also living this separated life as a Nazarite specifically. Now, uh, for you and me, that's unique. We're not, you want some grapes or some raisins, you can have them. Or you want vinegar, God bless you, you know, whatever. We're not doing this today. However, however, does God call, so this was sort of a, this was a way of being particularly holy, wasn't it? Holy is the word we would use, set apart. Are Christians like you and I today, are we called to be holy and set apart? Well, yeah, absolutely we are. In fact, on your study sheet, there's just a few references, but you could double or triple the list I've got on your study sheet. Be holy because I'm holy. You're, you're called to holiness as Christians. It's not like being a Nazarite, but it does require some thoughtfulness. And let me suggest two different arenas. So John would have had this, and you and I have it for sure. What must I get away from? What must I refrain from, abstain from, in order to draw near to Christ and to fulfill the role, the, the goals he has for my life, the things I'm to be about? What must I avoid? Guys, at the first, the, the first one is easy. It's sin. It's known sin. Uh, think of sexual immorality. This was big in the Bible. It's big today, isn't it? It's, it's, sex is a big gift God gives us. It's powerful because it's powerful. It can be destructively powerful as well. That's going on in spades. It's not just outside. It's not just in the world. It's in the church. You look at surveys and you see the degree to which professing Christians uh, practice sexual immorality, live together before they're married. Uh, anyway, on and on. The church looks an awful lot like the world. Not good. God means for us to avoid sin that we're aware of because it draws us away from him. It lessens our experience of God in his life. And it certainly removes our ability to be faithful in the time and the place and in the roles he's given us. So as I'm thinking about this, I just want to know what are the sins, what are the things I'm aware of? You can go to passages like Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, Ephesians 4, and you'll see lists. Put these things away. Colossians 3 happens to be anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language out of your mouth, etc., but what are the things that we might be consciously aware of? This is sin. And in order for me to be faithful, I need to put that thing away because it prevents me from drawing close to God and being the person he calls me to be, fulfilling the roles he's called me to fulfill. Something that requires, I think, a bit more nuance are influences, things that are not necessarily in and of themselves sinful, but things that for me, like John the Baptist, things that for me would be negatives as far as my ability to draw near to God and be the person he wants me to be, do the things he wants me to do. Things like entertainment. Uh, guys, you know, so, and this is the challenge on these, influences. Long-term, are they positive or negative? It's usually not, I saw a movie, I watched a show, I listened to a song, I read a book. That's usually not what we're talking about. Because influences happen gradually and slowly over time. So this requires more thoughtfulness and I think more care. What's the influence of my relationship with this other person on me? We used to tell our girls, we want you to be friends with everybody you can be, but this is the deal on the folks you hang out with. Are you becoming like them? Or are they becoming like you? In the sense of your, your call is to become like Christ. Is that friendship helping you become like Christ? Or is it pulling you away? Same with entertainment. All kinds of value judgments we make. Are those things helpful to us? John lived in the wilderness, which was uh, maybe a good idea for him, right? What does that immediately do? It removes him from all kinds of temptation where he's just removed a whole slate of things off the plate. It's like it's just me and God out in the wilderness. Now, guys, I don't believe God's called any of us to be hermits. I'm not advocating hermits, but I would say this. We need times and places where we're isolated away from other things to God. We're isolated. We put other things away on the back burner in one way or another. So the least we could do is this. 
you know, Mike gets up in the morning and I've got my mole eyes on, you know, they're, they're kind of like this, just squinty. I turn no lights on. I use a little reading light. I get my coffee. I sit down with my Bible. I read my Bible and I pray because that's my little bit of wilderness. I'm away from everything else before I start my day. It's just me and the Lord. That's all there is. And I'm looking in, in the scriptures. God, what do you have for me? What do I need to be aware of? And I'm praying. And that's Mike's little bit of wilderness every morning. I used to, and I haven't done this in a long time, I used to take days where I would simply go out to the trails at the lakes and I would fast and pray as I walked outside. And those were really great times. And I always felt like God was with me and I, and I was learning some significant things, all helpful. But John intentionally isolated himself away from some things. We're living in the midst of the world. We're in the world. We're not of the world. We, we get that. But do you and I have times and places and means where it's us and God, the temptations of life, the normal temptations, the normal frustrations, whatever those things are that divide our affections are put aside and we're just getting with God because we put everything else aside. That's important. I think it's hugely important. So we can take a lesson from John and part of it is it's what we get away from. Now, John's role wasn't just to avoid some things, right? Because he's got a positive call on his life of what he's supposed to do. He's set apart for God to do some things. And the first thing is he's calling the nation to repentance. See this in Luke 3 and also in Matthew 3. Luke 3 verses 1 through 5. John's now an adult. This is the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Luke tells us a number of other personages to fix this historically, and the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So he's out there isolated, close to God, but isolated from everything else. God's word comes to him. And verse 3, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it's written in the prophet, the words of Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You see it similar in Matthew 3. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. This is the house cleaning part of what John's call was. So this is Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3. So God's going to come to his people and he sends someone ahead. And John's role was to get them to clean up their house. Because God's holy and they're, and they're living in a way that's not holy. They're not ready to meet God their Savior. And so John says, repent. Repent. And baptism, baptism wasn't unique to John. Uh, baptisms, uh, Gentile converts to Judaism typically would have gone under the water in a form of baptism. There were Jewish practices of ablutions and washings. So this wasn't entirely unique. But John's deal was you're being baptized in the water. You're coming up confessing your sins. You're putting the old away and you're coming up clean, washed, if you will, so that you're ready to meet your God and your Savior. He's coming, he's around the corner, and we're getting the house clean. We're getting ready for God to come home. We're going to be clean, things will be in order. That was his call, and so that's exactly what you see him doing. Matthew and Luke chapters 3 in both accounts. I wonder if God came to our house today, what we would need to put away, or your house, or my house, or, or Lion and Lamb Church. You know, if we said Jesus is is in the lobby. Are we, are we good or do we cringe? Oh no, you know, my, my bed's not made or I don't know, whatever. You know, as John, he is unique and the people in his day know this guy's from God. He speaks, there's power, he has a spiritual authority you simply can't deny. And so Jesus is not yet on the scene when John starts out. So remember, the Jews are looking for key people. And so when John shows up, they ask him, who are you? Who are you that you're coming? We recognize you have spiritual authority. Who are you? Give us some biblical references. What are your bona fides? So in Luke 3, the people they're expecting, they're questioning in their hearts concerning John. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe John's it. So John answers them and he says, I baptize you with water. The one who is coming is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John says this, not only am I not the Messiah, but compared to the Messiah, I'm not important enough to be the lowest slave servant in his house. I'm not worthy to untie or tie his sandal. There's no comparison between me and the one I'm introducing you to at all. In John 3, John's disciples come up, and you've got to love their attitude on one hand, although they were totally missing it on the other. They come up to him in uh, John 3, 26. They say, Rabbi, to John, he who was with you across the Jordan, and I'm skipping some of the narrative story, so just stick with the, the point here. The one who was with you, Jesus, across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, he's baptizing. He's taking your place. And all are going to him. Now, the text will tell us later, Jesus personally isn't baptizing, but the disciples are. They're continuing that call to repent. And in fact, when Jesus comes on the scene, he echoes the same words John has said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, because the king is present, because Yahweh has arrived. So John answered, a person can't receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I've been sent before him. I just raise this for this reason. When John's tempted to take credit for who and what he's not, he turns it down flat right away. He leaves no question. You know, one of the challenges, I think, for Christians is this. This is a small thing. Uh, if, if you have a spiritual gift, there's joy in using it. But do I lose the joy of serving in Christ's name to get accolades for myself? It's possible to cross that line where I'm not doing it because God's given it to me, I'm being faithful and I have joy in the faithfulness, but I'm doing it because I get some kind of accolade back. When really our service is meant to always divert or push Christ and his honor, not our own. So when John is offered the temptation to make much of himself, he shuts it down immediately. He says, not only is that not me, I can't climb high enough to untie or tie his sandals, the one that's coming after me. We want to be careful for ourselves that it's Christ and his honor that we're, we're interacting for and about. And motives are hard to, hard to parse sometimes, aren't they? We may start doing something for the right thing and end up doing it for the wrong reason later. But we want to be clear, as John was, it's not about me. I'm just the voice. It's Christ. It's God, your Savior, you're waiting for. To which he eventually gets. This is John 1. Guys, John 1, 29 is a great verse, and it is one of the two verses by which this church derives its name. So when John was there baptizing at the Jordan, Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And this is what he said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one. He's it. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now remember from Luke's gospel, we know John is at least six months older than Jesus. This can't be talking about the moment of their conception. This is Jesus existed before his conception. This is God the Son. This isn't just Jesus, the man from Nazareth. This is God the Son existed before me. He says, verse 31, For this purpose I came baptizing with water. My whole existence, saying repent and be baptized, is that he might be revealed to Israel. My whole purpose is to introduce Israel to Jesus. John bore witness, he said, I saw the Spirit descend. And this goes back to the baptism accounts in Matthew 3 and Luke 3. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And this is his conclusion. I have seen, I have borne witness, that this is the Son of God. So John goes back in his memory, and you remember the scene where he baptizes Jesus. First he says, I shouldn't be baptizing you. 
She says, it's okay, it's the right thing to do. John says, okay, baptizes him. And when he comes up, the spirit comes down like a dove, hovers above Jesus, and the father's voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And John says, he's the one. This is the one. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' testimony was always to and about Jesus. And guys, this is something I think, we'll close here in just a minute on another verse out of John 3, but uh, we often talk about having gospel-centered conversations, talking to others about Jesus, sharing the gospel, introducing the, the concept, at least, to others as well. And yet, for most of us, what we'll find is, uh, I'm intimidated, I'm nervous, I'm fearful, uh, I don't think I can do this well. All John did, he sees Jesus, and he says, that's the Lamb. <laughs> that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he says that the reason I'm here is to bear witness to Him. And there's a huge sense in which every Christian is meant to be like John in that sense, that we are to be witnesses. You know, the Greek for witness is martyrs. We are called to be martyrs for Christ. And it's always good to ask ourselves, are we looking for those opportunities? Because like John, God means for us to talk to others about Christ. We're, we're the messenger. We're not the message. We're the voice. We're like a wind in the desert. But Jesus, he's the real deal. And we are called to speak to others about Christ. Are we praying for and are we looking for the opportunities to do that? Without Christ, we are without God and without hope. Isn't the best thing you and I could do to imitate John and simply tell others about who and what Jesus is? And listen to this. And I think this is one of the reasons why for John... Nothing was more exciting or rewarding than talking to others about Christ. Listen to this in John 3, verses 29 and 30. So this is following when the disciples say, hey, Jesus is ripping you off. He's taken your followers and they're following him now. And John says this. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He says, uh, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. You know, um, as a new Christian, I was always excited about the rapture. And I'm still, I, I love eschatology. I love almost all things theological, but uh, the rapture, you know, so First Thessalonians 4, you know, a shout and the trumpet, you know, and you're raised in an instant, you're translated in the air, you meet Christ in the air, you're always with Christ in the air. And I'm thinking, you know, normally, I'm thinking from my vantage point. You know, I'm thinking, yeah, man, the world, you know, it's getting bad, you know, and Jesus will come back and, you know, and be free of sin, no small thing, free of sin. Free of this body, you get your resurrection body. I'm thinking about Mike and Mike's benefit, and I'm thinking this is a good deal, and I'm ready. So, come Lord Jesus. Now, that's all fine at one level, right? But it totally misses the other side of the equation, doesn't it? Jesus gets his bride at the rapture. There's this whole other side to the equation. What's Jesus get out of the deal? <laughs> he gets his bride. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. But for all his suffering, what's the fruit of his suffering? Well, he's got... He's got people with him in heaven now, but they don't have the resurrection bodies. The feast hasn't occurred. He's still waiting for the wedding day. John says, I'm like the friend of the bridegroom. And, and I, I hear the bride, she's coming down the aisle, and my friend, my, my good friend, gets his bride. This is his day. And John says, my joy is complete because he gets what's his due. And that's what I think, if we've got that, you know what, sharing Christ is simple. Because your heart overflows with a good theme, Psalm 45, about the Lord himself. And you don't have to worry about yourself, I'm not afraid. It's all good, because Jesus gets his due. That's what we want. We want to cultivate that kind of faithfulness. Part of it means we put things away, guys. It means we're called to be holy. We say no to some things. Some things that others may do, and we say nope because it pulls me away. We also get with Christ. We're in his word. We're in prayer. We're worshiping with each other, but we're drawing near to him 
because we want to be so filled up with Jesus that our desire is to see him filled up with the good things he paid for in his crucifixion, in his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, and all the things that are coming his way yet that you and I get to be a part of. So I love John's words, my joy is complete. Well, let me pray and then we'll stand and we'll, we'll close with the text. Uh, Father, would you, would you isolate, would you indicate for us those things in our life that would pull us away from you, that would keep us from being less than the full-grown people in Christ you mean us to be? Would you help us to find a wilderness place where we can simply shut out the world for a time and get with you? Would you help us to, to be willing, happily willing, Lord, to put away that which would keep us from most fully honoring you, bearing fruit for you? And Lord, would you, would you increase our love and our desire to see Christ, uh, not only for our benefit, but for his? Would you help us to have joy overflowing because Jesus is coming into his own and getting the fruits of his labors? In his name we pray, amen. Guys, let's read together. This is uh, Revelation 22, verse 17. And we'll sing from there. So go ahead and stand if you would. We're going to worship with Bill and the group here in a moment. But let's read this together. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Church was called to go in the past.